Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book four of The Dark Tower, Wizard in Glass, the interlude and come reap sections, chapters one through four. Let's start the show. We start off with a three-page interlude back in Kansas, somewhere, somewhen. There, the quartet is fascinated by Roland's story, its detail, and how long it's taking to tell. As we start the come reap section, Roland and Susan's love story is set against the time of harvest in Magus. Tensions are high as Cuthbert and Elaine worry about their leader, Roland. The big coffin hunters worry about what the boys know. Cordelia and Rhea find out about Roland and Susan's affair. And we find out the potential plans of the good man, John Farson, and what that might mean for the affiliation. Some light skirmishes are fought. Jonas vandalizes the boys' camp. Roland and Cuthbert confront Rhea. But by the end of this section, we are only a tiny bit closer to any sort of resolution. Jay, I wanted to start off with our pronunciation of the mm-hmm. town. That yeah, I noticed Roland you changed. The, yes, the town where the Roland and the boys are. We've had some Twitter folks who are just getting started um, in this section. As you know, we're a couple of weeks ahead of, of where people are in, in listening to this. And they're like, your pronunciation is killing me. It should be <laughs> pronounced magus. And uh, this is a person who has listened to the audiobooks of The Dark Tower. So I'll take that on some certain authority that perhaps Magus is the correct way to say it, if I am understanding the phonetic uh, spelling on Twitter, which knowing me, I could be screwing that up as well. But I'm starting to pronounce it Magus going forward. Okay. So then that's kind of a return to what I originally thought. I was thinking about maybe sticking with Mehis because I've really gotten myself used to that, but I don't know. Now they both kind of feel weird and <laughs> to me. So, and I I believe the audiobook because I would have to think that at some point the producers of the book should have consulted with King himself if they weren't sure. We don't know that they did, but King's really involved with audiobooks. He's recorded several himself uh of his own books, of course. And so I wouldn't imagine that if there's some word that he made up in some kind of pseudo Spanish language, he would have been more than willing to say, yeah, it's pronounced Megis or Magis or Mejis. Now, what's interesting is that um, we had another Twitter follower who's using a bootleg audio thing, and he actually says the main character's name is pronounced Roland. So we've been pronouncing that wrong this whole time. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if we can trust all of our Twitter followers. You don't like Roland? It could be fake news. (laughs) Can't trust that social media stuff. Well, as we continue to discuss this 20-year-old book, let's talk about the interlude because I thought that this was a fascinating section. Um, I am somebody who had the exact same question that Eddie had of Roland, which is, how can you know every corner of this story? It's exactly what I was thinking. Roland's telling us this story on the side of I-70 to to Eddie and Susan and, and Jake, and yet he knows parts of this story where he's not there that he would not be privy to. He's in the thoughts of multiple characters' heads and telling us what they're thinking and what their motivations are. 
And there's absolutely no way he could know this. And Eddie's right on. How can you know every corner of this story, Roland? And then Roland says, oh, that's not the question you really want to know, Eddie. The question you really want to know is, how long have you been talking? Mm-hmm. And Roland says, well, time works weird here. I'll take as long as I need to to tell this story, and, and we'll leave it at that. But I want to get back to the main question. How does Roland know every corner of this story? Um, is he telling it? Is he not telling it? Does, is he making it up? Is he, is he guessing? And it's fascinating to me, and especially so when we get later on into this section, it's a part when Jonas is investigating the boys' camp and end up vandalizing it. And at one point, he finds the hidden spot where the boys have kept their guns. And the narrator says, two of the bundles contain single five-shot revolvers of a type then called, and then in parentheses, for no reason I know, carvers. And it just killed me to know who's saying, for no reason I know. Is that Mm -hmm. Roland? Is that King? Is it Jonas thinking it in his head? But that I is just throwing me off because we've had 300 pages of this book set in the past with Roland telling this story, but that's the first I that's made it into this section from a narrator's perspective. And I just want to know, how does he know every corner of the story, Jay? What's going on here? Well, I think one of the interesting things about this is that it makes you kind of take a step back and think about who is narrating the story, who's telling the story. And we know that this is a story within a story. This is one of the characters in the book telling a story to other characters in the book. So I think this is maybe King kind of just like he's doing with the interlude itself. He's kind of taking a step out to remind you of the structure of what's going on here. Like, don't forget, this is Roland telling this story. So every time you hear information that not even Roland ought to know, it's still Roland telling the story. He's still providing the information. And that's where I've kind of come down on this. This is Roland. If if we were sitting around the campfire with Susanna and Eddie and Jake and Oi listening to this, all we would hear is Roland's voice anyway. So if he broke into a first person parenthetical for no reason I know, it wouldn't feel that awkward at all. And that's kind of how I picture it. It's just awkward as a reader when we haven't gotten that at all. Yeah. You know, we do get in the interlude that sort of jump out and, and oh yeah, this is a story in a story because we have been very invested in in the story itself that we didn't really think about that. And it's a way for King to tell us, oh yeah, don't forget, we're, here's where we are. Yep. But when that one came, you know, almost 100 pages later, I was like, ooh, that's weird. And, and why does that exist? Of course, it also makes me think, how does Roland know what's in these people's thoughts? I mean, is it because he's had 30 years or, you know, a thousand years to think through this and come up with, oh, this must have been everybody's motivation? Is there some sort of magic involved? When the man in black sent him on his vision quest throughout the universe, did he get more knowledge than he had before? There's just all these potential reasons that he could know all this. And whether or not he actually knows this is what Jonas was thinking, this is what Susan was thinking, this is what Cordelia was thinking, this is what Rhea was thinking, or has he just made assumptions and made it part of his story? And and if it's either of those things, do we need to wonder, is Roland a reliable narrator or not? Or is what he is telling us and telling Jake and Eddie and Susanna and Oi to be trusted? Hmm. Those are very good questions. <laughs> and no answers. Instead, we get the, how long have you been talking? 
And we get the answer to that, which is, eh, as long as the night, as long as it needs. Time works sort of funny here. And yeah. Re remember that time when I told you that you can't trust which direction the compass is pointing? Same thing with the clock. Same it's thing all with, good. It's all good. And that's the question that you really want to know, which makes me think, hey, Eddie, maybe you should have stuck with that first question because that's the more interesting question in my opinion. Yeah. And I think in a story full of echoes, this is yet another echo of Roland's time with the man in black on the Golgotha, right? That was another night that lasted as long as it needed to. We have precedence of this. Yeah. When an important event has to happen, when an exchange, when a palaver, um, it needs to take as long as it takes. They, you know, the man in black wasn't going to say, all right, sun's coming up, let's have breakfast and you know, maintain our truce and we'll just keep doing this night after night till I finish telling you what I got to tell you. Uh, no, it's the, the magic just makes the night last as long as it needs to. And in that case, we're told that it lasted 10 years and Roland apparently aged, uh, you know, 10 years. But in this occasion, it seems like time is, it seems more like time is not passing. Right. The characters aren't aging. They're not feeling hungry they don't feel the need to use the bathroom like like all of these details come out in this that short interlude there where um you know eddie's like yeah i'm not even hungry like what's going on here <laughs> yeah. how long has this been going on and uh but i think that's a nice uh echo to the the night on the golgotha as well yep so this section the interlude ends with roland repeating true love is boring as boring as any other strong and addicting drug, and as with any other strong drug, and we move into the come reap section. So we have Roland making this very direct connection between true love being boring, which I think he means to those outside of the love itself, obviously. Certainly, yeah. Roland and Susan aren't bored, but the addiction is there, and that seems to be potentially dangerous and adds to the tension of the story of, you know, even though true love is boring, there is this tension there between will we be found out? Um, what will it mean for me and my friends? Because Cuthbert is is getting antsy. Elaine's getting antsy, but Cuthbert in particular is worried about what this true love is. It blinding Roland in some way? Is it keeping him from their mission? Um, Susan's obviously worried because she's been committed to the mayor at the end of the reaping ceremony. So there's this whole idea of true love being boring in this come reap section. Yeah. And when King started talking about how true love and addiction are boring, it kind of helped me realize that I was a little bit bored. Hmm. I've been struggling to just keep turning the pages here. And I thought about it a little bit, and I think it boils down to the level of familiarity that I have with the story. The first three books, I think, stand up to repeated readings. They are unique, and they they approach and add to the genre of westerns and horror and science fiction and blend things in a really special way. I think that's what makes those books so strong. And I can read them and reread them, and no matter how much I know and remember of the details, the overall structure just it doesn't get dull to me. This story. Because I read it one time when the book was published, I'm much less clear on the details. But I still remember the big points of the plot. So it's kind of like I was spoiled 
with the bullet points of what's going to happen next. So I don't have anything maintaining that tension for me. I don't mm. need to know, oh, how's it going to turn out for these guys? Because I already do. So what I would want to fall back on is King's use of uh, blending genres or a unique way of telling a story or a really amazing, surprising structure to what he's doing. But this book doesn't really have much of those things. It's very much more straightforward. It's a very traditional story. And I think that's fine. That's not something to hold against it. But because I don't have anything else to hang my hat on, I'm bored. Mm. And for me, I feel a little bit of the opposite. So I'm very engaged with the story. I find myself flipping through these pages very quickly, not taking many notes because I want to find out what happened, what happened, what happened. And there is this, as I said, great tension in all aspects of the story. You know, are they going to get found out? What's going to happen with Susan? Because I don't think it's going to be good. There's been enough foreshadowing to let us know that Susan's probably not going to make it. You know, when Cuthbert and, and Roland come to, to a head, what's going to happen there? What's going to happen with the big coffin hunters? Where's John Farson and, and that all fit in with the affiliation? And yet, even with all that tension, it's undercut by King on so yeah. many different occasions. And that, to some extent, gets me to where you are, where I'm like, oh, well, why are we spending all this time? And it is a lot of time. It's, you know, we're 400 plus pages into this this book, and we find out that, oh, yeah, uh, King just drops a line that next year, all three boys would be confirmed smokers. And it's like, oh, so I guess there's no stakes that we're going to worry about them losing their lives to the big coffin hunters, because they'll all be smoking in a in a year from now. And, right. um, you know, that is that undercutting throughout. Yeah. I mean, we know that between this point in time and the, the present day when Roland is alone, that both Cuthbert and Elaine have died, but we don't know exactly when, right? So maybe one of them dies going up against the big coffin hunters, right? But when King throws that line in there about a year from now, we know that they're going to, all three of them are going to survive whatever comes next in, in Magus. See, I still want to say Mahis now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you're right. But that's something that King always does. He does it in all of his books. He's always done it. And he has done it throughout this book and throughout the Dark Tower books. That's his style. And it works for the most part. But when he's riding by Susan and he spots her in the window and it has this magical you know, lovesick moment because they, they want to acknowledge each other, but can't. Yep. And then the next paragraph is King telling us he's going to remember her that way for the rest of his life. And it's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, there, like there, it's not the last time not, he's going to see her, but there's not that many good moments left, I guess. Right. Yep. Yeah. So, so you're a little bored. I, I'm, I'm engaged with the tension, but I wish it was a little bit shorter. But overall, we, we're liking it. Yeah. It's oh, yeah. I'm, I'm enjoying the story. There's no question. I, yeah. I think it'll be interesting when we get to win through the keyhole to compare because neither one of us have read that book and it's a shorter book. Mm. And it's also structured this way that I understand it is a flashback story. So there's a lot in common with Wizard and Glass, but it has the things that I think we're both looking for. We haven't read it and it's a little less lengthy. So 
maybe King is a little bit better at getting to the point in that book. Yep. I want to touch on one other thing you said. You you said how much you enjoy when there's the blending of science fiction and fantasy, and really we're not getting a whole lot of that in this section. We talked in a previous episode how there's more magic here with mm. Rhea and the, and the globe, but for the most part, this is, as you said, a fairly straightforward Western. And for me, and this reminds me of Game of Thrones. I know we both talk about Game of Thrones on this podcast a lot, but for me, the the most interesting part of Game of Thrones is not the dragons or the magic or the fantasy, but the political gamesmanship that happens and the moving around of pieces on the giant chessboard that is Westeros. Yeah, and I, I see I, I see a lot of that in this section as we get all these pieces moving around and who's going to find out what and what do they know and what are they going to do about what they know. And King calls it the game of castles here. Mm -hmm. um, but that's that's what is intriguing for me. So I think that might be my I'm a little bit more engaged even though there's not that science fiction fantasy piece of it. That's right. Yeah. In the world of the Dark Tower, you play Chancellor's Patience. And you either win or you die. <laughs> Ka is a ladder. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> right now, we've got 100 listeners who've never watched Game of Thrones. Like, what are they talking about? <laughs> Although I do think the Venn diagram of our listeners uh, and Game of Thrones fans is probably uh, pretty close pretty, to a circle. Pretty close to a circle. We'll, we'll, we'll have to find out about that. So one of the things that we've discussed briefly in other episodes, but we wanted to spend a little bit more time talking about here, is the idea of religion. So while it's not a huge part of this section, there are enough references that we thought it was in interesting. We could spend a little bit of time talking about it. So we know that. Um, the man Jesus is somebody who is worshipped in Midworld to some extent. So we know that Christianity in some form has made its way over, and there's some pieces of Christianity, whether it be through crosses or religion, or even in the solitaire game that Eldred Jonas is playing, which is called Chancellor's Patience. It's a game of cards. And the main decks seem to be the four authors of the. Uh, I'm sorry, the four authors of the of apocalypse. The, of the yeah. apocalypse, the four <laughs> authors of the go apocalypse gospels. Where <laughs> it's all the same when you get right down to it, right? I'm sorry, the four authors of the gospels: Peter, Luke, Mark, and John. Am I right? That sounds right. Maybe a little bit of Sunday school rubbing off on me. Yeah. So it's interesting that this idea of of Jesus has come over. And we see it here. Now, we know that Eldred is not necessarily a follower of Christianity. It's been hinted at that he uh, worshipped with the Manny at some point, who seemed to be right. some other type of religion that's in Midworld. And gives him access to the magic doors that are similar to the ones that Roland travels through. Agreed, yes. I, I like the little detail of how uh, the Chancellor named Peter is the Chancellor of Keys, and that has a very tight analogy to Peter being the the guardian at the pearly gates so he would have the keys to heaven so I think that that makes perfect sense in a subtle way but um, it's just laying on that uh, extra little detail about how these are not the the suits of the of the poker deck that we're we're used to of you know typical playing cards instead it's the authors of the gospels um, yep. but they they're not referred to that way it also occurred to me that I don't know if this is just a coincidence that the it seems like many of the people in 
mages seem to be of a Christian bent. And, uh, and because mages is supposed to be styled after a kind of a city-state that would exist in maybe southwest North America, so it could be like a, like a Texas town or a Mexican town. So I kind of get the feeling that if you're, if you're styling or modeling mages after that kind of part of North America, that maybe a lot of the people would be Christian. Yep. I just feel like this place has a strong sense of a Christian town. Yes. And so it's, this is a place where lots of people follow the man Jesus. So it seemed like a great place for uh, Sylvia Pittston to stop by, right? And, and sure enough, she's been in, in town before. So we've got two connections to Tull now. We've got Sylvia Pittston with her fire and brimstone Bible-thumping uh, road show that she brings to towns, and then Sheb, our piano player. So somehow they've both made it to Magus, and they'll eventually make their way to Tull, where Roland will encounter them again, although Roland doesn't encounter Sylvia here in town. He, it's just backstory that we don't that Roland are, and she are not there concurrently. Although it just occurred to me now, in Tull, I never really questioned or even guessed Sylvia Pittston's relative age to Roland, but I realize now that I assume that they were about the same age. Mm. But now, if she was an adult passing through Magus when Roland was 14, and then something like 16 to 20 years later, he gets to Tull. Yeah. So she's got to be at least five, maybe 10 years older than him. I guess it's still not that big of a deal, but she wasn't presented as a much older character. No, because isn't it even hinted at that she's potentially pregnant with the child of a demon? Yeah. I mean, depending on how old she is, it might be odd that she's even able to be pregnant. And she also has this sexual magnetism that very few of the other people have in Tull, that because she's healthy and fit, you know, and her skin is smooth and, and healthy. And yes. So, like, even Roland sort of is drawn to her charms, her physicality. So, I know she didn't strike me as somebody who was like, say, 20 years older than Roland. Right. No, I could see that. Yeah, definitely. So we get another reference to uh, Christianity when they, Jonas and the big coffin hunters are talking about how they need to move the oil out of Magus and get it moving along. And they say, we'll, we'll move it at night, two by two, like the animals going on board Old Pa's Ark. Yeah. Is Old Pa just like some really bad breakdown of the word Noah? <laughs> that, you know, after it just got mispronounced and misremembered and mistranslated so many times, it just became old pa. Or does it just make sense that, hey, he's sort of, uh, he was sort of the grandfatherly like guy and yeah, maybe you just sort of see him as old pa. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's one of just a very small number of human beings who survived the flood, right? Yep. So an interesting thing about Christianity and maybe somebody who's more religious than I and can talk through these, can write in and discuss this about us, but when I was younger, my mom had a friend who said she didn't believe in aliens, that she didn't believe in life elsewhere in the universe, and even if she did, they would never be real life because there was only one Jesus and he died for the sins of humans on earth. 
So no other alien creature anywhere could ever be saved like the people on Earth because they could never know Jesus. It makes me well, wonder if they'd have the same philosophy about Midworld, which isn't a direct representation of Earth, but another dimension. So is there only one Jesus and can he only die once and he can only die for the sins of people on Earth? It is kind of fascinating because, it, it, of course, anything that is religion related or religion adjacent is always open to interpretation. But if the way you decide to write that rule for yourself is that planets other than Earth aren't part of that scheme, you could still allow alternate versions of Earth to be part of that scheme because they are Earth. The people on it are people. They're, they're human beings. And, and for all we know, you know, in those lost years of Jesus's life that we don't have much information on, maybe he was going to the other Earths and introducing himself as the man Jesus. Interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. I, do, I do remember her saying that God would not be so cruel as to let his son die more than once. So that he only died the one time on this earth. Well, what did they refer to this in the, uh, sorry to bring up the movie again, um, Keystone Earth? Yes, yes Keystone Earth. Keystone. So, so the earth where we, the, the people who live on in the real world, we're on Keystone Earth. We're the like Earth Prime, right? This is, this is the number one. Even though Midworld is where the tower is and that's the axis of everything. Yep. Keystone Earth is is where, you know, where we are. Maybe that's where Jesus died is on Keystone Earth, but he just visited the others. Yep. So it's not only Christianity that is a religion of midworld, but then there's this whole idea of Ka, which is much more than destiny. It also indicates it might be a person's essence or soul, and that seems to be a driver of a lot of what Roland and his Katet feel. And we've talked a lot about Ka before. But then there's this other sort of undercurrent. I mean, we're in this harvest season, and there does seem to be a little bit of the, what we would say in our world, pagan rituals still, right? So yeah, at the harvest, so. they're going to have this um, big bonfire at the end to celebrate the harvest. And they have a giant festival, which, you know, is not unusual. We have the same sort of thing in our, mm -hmm. in our world. Uh, but I love this idea of the burning of the stuffy guys, which the stuffy guys seem to be some sort of scarecrows that, that, yeah. that, that they and use I, to I, keep things. I love the name stuffy guy. It's just, it's, it's just like old pa, right? It's so much more literal, but at the same time feels more creative. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, like, oh man, you got two stuffy guys out back keeping away the, the crows. What do they do? They scare the crows away? Interesting. Interesting. Hey, stuffy guy. Yeah. <laughs> and doesn't doesn't Rhea's stuffy guy have multiple arms like he's a mutant of some sort? Yeah, she purposely makes him a mutant, has like an extra arm coming straight out of its chest and stuff. Yeah. She's got mutant plants, so might as well have a mutant stuffy guy. So they have this idea that, hey, they burn these stuffy guys in effigy, which makes sense. I mean, we there's a lot of that in our world type of imagery of, hey, it's the end of the season and we'll burn stuff in effigy. Of course, Jonas wants to make this worse by... Hey, instead of stuffy guys, we're going to throw into the bonfire. We're going to throw those three no good boys in the fire and yeah. we'll show them. <laughs> and nobody will stop us because everybody really just wants to see people burn, right? I mean, yeah. that, that's, that's the vibe that we're getting because more than one character has mentioned like straight out, I really look forward to or I really enjoy or I get this, this like wonderful thrill runs through me when the stuffy guys burn. 
And that seems so twisted, but it also seems embedded in their culture. It's not like, it's not like one person's a weirdo and like, oh yeah, burn the stuff you guys, you know, it's, it's like, everyone's like, yeah, burn the stuff you guys. It's the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So knowing how much of a fan Stephen King is of Shirley Jackson and the lottery where we get, Mm. you know, a group of people who are willing to, to sacrifice, you know, the, the scapegoat in some way, it, it's it, it's not unusual to see this, in my opinion. That King knows what he's doing here. He's he's definitely caught onto a vibe that that exists. Yep, yep. Well, we wanted to take that break to talk about religion, just because it's come up a lot. We're you know four books in. Um, I imagine that there might be some more references uh, on the way, so we'll continue to look out for that as we read on. Before we leave the topic of religion, there you mentioned Ka a moment ago. And we're reinforced with the idea that Ka is more than destiny. It's actually another way of describing the essence of somebody, or maybe another way of saying it is their soul. Yep. In book two, when Roland goes through the magic door on the beach into the mind of, say, Eddie, um, he says, he, or he thinks to himself, my Ka is in Eddie's mind. Mm. And so it doesn't make sense for that to mean Roland's destiny went into Eddie's mind. It's more of who Roland is, the part of Roland that is Roland that isn't his physical body is his Ka. And that's in addition to the idea that Ka is also a form of destiny or predestination. So we saw that only briefly and only in that one way in book two, but here again in book four, we get this repeated that um, that Ka is more than destiny. And so I think we're we're getting a a fuller and rounder definition of what Ka really means. Yeah, indeed. So Ka might bring Roland and Cuthbert to a head here, right? So uh, we've gotten that that tension before in the earlier chapters, but this section that we read for this episode is really focused on Roland's thoughts on what his mission is and what his duty is and what his relationship is with Susan. And how that intersects with what Cuthbert understands that to be. Cuthbert sees Susan as a distraction from what they're sent there to do, and really something that's tearing the cotet apart, that he believes that Roland is going down the wrong path. And some of this is jealousy. Cuthbert mentions how beautiful yeah. Susan is. But on the other hand, he's right. I mean, they're there to do a mission and He's worried that Roland's not seeing straight. And Roland, on the other hand, is also like, hey, I'm the leader of this. I know what I'm doing. I have a plan in mind. And because we're getting it from his perspective, we do get a lot of pieces in his head where he makes it clear like, oh, I know what's going to happen. I know I'm just, he's keeping information from Cuthbert and Elaine. Um, and, and he has a plan. But it does very much come to a head. Um, and as, yep. as you know from reading this, uh, they end up in a fist fight, um, and it sort of both shakes them out of it. But what what more is happening here between these two, and why are they acting in this way, Jay? I think we're seeing an interesting dynamic in that Roland is keeping his cards so close, and part of that subterfuge is sort of maybe even playing up the whole you know lovesick teenager thing mm-hmm. that even his two closest companions, his closest friends. Um, they start to buy his act. And what's interesting is that they're the only ones who he does this act for. Whenever Roland interacts with anybody from town, 
he doesn't act like a lovesick teenager because that would be way too risky. So he's doing this entirely for their benefit and it's it seems to have a bad impact overall. Like there is no reason why Roland couldn't have been more open and honest with them from day one, but for whatever reason he wasn't. And I can't really think of why. Um, and even Roland says, re- makes that realization, like <laughs> after Cuthbert punches him in the face, like, yeah, why can't I just tell you my plan? Duh. <laughs> um, and that kind of takes us back to like what we were talking about in the last episode when Roland's father gave him that info dump. We're like, this is good. This is this is an example of smart people doing smart things for the best possible reason. And here we've kind of changed gears to Roland maybe not doing the smartest things for not the best reasons. And he gets that wake up call in the form of a you know punch <laughs> to the jaw yep. that it's like, oh yeah, I can totally tell you guys. Let's let's uh let's let's share this information now. And I guess if he hadn't withheld that there'd be a lot less plot tension here which might have made for a less interesting story but it's still frustrating to see roland make this totally avoidable mistake or what appears to be a mistake but to some extent he's right i mean he does have a plan he knows what he's doing um he could be worried that you know the more people that know the more chances that somebody's going to screw up and let something slip um, but on the other hand, I think Cuthbert's dead on as well. I mean, Roland is blinded by his love for Susan, and he is putting at risk all their lives, including Susan's, as well as their mission. Um, and it all brings to me this idea, and we're seeing it here, that Roland, to some extent, doesn't mind using his companions to get what he wants and what he needs. We saw that he was willing to let Jake drop in book one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really strong example of that. But yeah, but, yeah, and you know, and the fact that Eddie's called him on it numerous times throughout the series, like, "Will you let us go for the tower?" And he says, "Of course I won't." And then he says under his breath, "Yeah, I would." Yeah, yeah, I might if I think about it. Yeah, I probably would. <laughs> um, and it it seems odd that if we do go back to the fact that Roland is telling the story to Jake and Susan and Eddie, that maybe this isn't putting him in the best light. Like, hey guess what? I used to be friends with a couple other people and I used them just like I'm using you to get to what I wanted. In this case, it wasn't the tower. It was for love or or it was for my bigger, you know, my mission for the affiliation. But hey, I have a tendency to use people, get used to it. But Roland went into this story knowing that, like he warned them because they're like, they're, yeah. they're so eager to hear the story. Is it a Western? Yeah, it's going to be so fun. Let Tell us the story. And he said, you know, basically hold your applause till the end. So, you know, in not so many words, like, see if you still want to even look me in the face when I finish the story. He says that to them. This is going to be more of a Clint Eastwood Unforgiven type Western than a John Wayne uh, Western (laughs) with with clear good guys and bad guys. A lot more gray. Yeah, I mean, and you said it very eloquently when we were talking about this the other day that basically Cuthbert is jealous, but he's correct. But also Roland is correct, but he's stubborn. So it's like neither one of them is totally wrong, but they both have really flawed angles of approach. And I guess that subtlety and that complexity makes this for a better story and makes it for a better novel. Uh, So, you know, hats off to King for that. But 
it's still frustrating to know that we're supposed to we're supposed to admire these characters for their abilities, for their intelligence and their cunning. And when they are acting stubborn or purposefully withholding information for no good reason that we are, that we have access to, then it makes us lose a little bit of that faith in the character. It makes me like Elaine all the more because I would be the peacemaker. I was actually thinking about that. Um, we've got Roland as a constant, obviously, through all these books. But I think the character that I, I think I am most similar to or who I would be if I were one of the characters, I think it would be Cuthbert. There needs to be some sort of Facebook quiz for me to tell who I am. Oh, so somebody can just mine inf- personal information about <laughs> yes. you to feed ads. Yeah, yeah, that's what you need. Yeah, because I, I admire the way that Cuthbert is always making light of things and joking about things, but underneath that surface, he's still just as dangerous and just as capable as as Roland. I, I think I'm like Elaine because I am a a peacemaker. And I also have a little bit of the shine. <laughs> <laughs> don't you mean shinning? <laughs> the shitting. No, can't say the shine. You don't want to get sued. All right. We're getting giddy. That must mean it's time for fun stuff. Yeah. Let's get into fun stuff. So again, we mentioned before how Stuffy Guys is a nice little play on the Scarecrow and much more evocative. I like the Pinch and Jilly show that's going on. So much like a Punch and Judy show, uh, there's a Pinch and Jilly. It gets referred to a couple times in this section as they build up to the harvest. And hey, I thought that that was pretty cool. Yeah. There's a line when Rhea is uh, very angry and she is slamming her fist against the doorframe of her hut. Mm. And the exact words are, she slammed her fist against the post. And that, of course, made me think, is this an it illusion? Is mm. she slamming her fist against the post and still insists she sees the ghost? So it was still a pretty light illusion. But <laughs> So speaking of ghosts, we both pointed out this line, and you had mentioned earlier about how what you like about this section is the opportunity for King to be a little bit more poetic in his writing Yes, um, as we get this story. And this is when... Roland and Susan are riding into town, and you had mentioned before about how he sees her at the window and how he'd always remember that. And we get this great line, so do we pass the ghosts that haunt us later in our lives. They sit undramatically by the roadside like poor beggars, and we see them only from the corners of our eyes, if we see them at all. That's just really good. Good yeah. writing there. Good writing there, Stephen. Yeah, it, it goes on, and uh, I, I think that whole section is is wonderful. Yeah, it goes on. The idea that they have been waiting there for us rarely, if ever, crosses our minds. Yet they do wait, and when we have passed, they gather up their bundles of memory and fall in behind, treading in our footsteps and catching up little by little. And then, of course, as he raises his hand to her and he's about to kiss, but he doesn't want to give it away, but it's, of course, too late. Cordelia, Mm -hmm. even in that little hand wave, wonders what's going on, and that's when she starts to put the pieces together that there might be something going on between them. Yeah, it's kind of remarkable, but I suppose necessary for there to, to for the plot to work the way that it does, that she comes to these conclusions which happen to be correct based on 
all bad things. Like she has no actual evidence. She's observed nothing actually happening. She's just convinced herself that this is the case based on suspicion, jealousy, aggravation, exhaustion, like all of these things that she she's just sick and tired of dealing with her niece and it's driving her crazy. And she just happened to fixate on Roland and actually got it right. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder how it would have changed the story or if it would have been maybe more interesting if she had made all the same accusations, but said it was like Elaine. Mm. Like she just totally had it wrong, but only in the name of the person that Susan was, you know, having a secret ro- a fair romance one. with. So, yeah. um, and then I don't know, maybe Susan would have been like, are you crazy? I, he's not my type. <laughs> <laughs> he's much more of a Sean than a Jay. <laughs> oh, uh, there's, um, there's a line when Jonas is sort of mocking, uh, Roland and, and Cuthbert. And he says, Hey, uh, earth's cold, but painless, isn't it? Like that's, that's kind of like, that's the easy way out sort of thing. And I wondered, was this a mash reference? Is uh-huh. King, King trying to tell us that suicide is painless? Maybe all of our younger viewers, mash was a TV show. About the- And before that it was a movie. Yeah. And it was about the Korean war. Which is really an allegory for the Vietnam War. It's quite amusing. And the TV show used an instrumental version of the theme song. So the suicide is painless part of it is known by far fewer people unless they watch the the movie. The movie, yes. Uh, My favorite part, and this is for our uh, listener who loves 80s references, when Cuthbert and Roland are coming to a head, you know, they, they had been using Elaine as a go-between, but finally Cuthbert gets really angry, turns around and yells at Roland, she has made you a coward. And I mm. thought that this was going to be Roland's Marty McFly moment. I figured like being called a coward was what was going to turn him over the edge <laughs> and get back at that Biff. Oh, wait, I mean, uh, get back at Cuthbert. Um, but instead... <laughs> It's not. Roland turns to stone, but just lets it go and lets it slides off. He's he doesn't have that passion like Marty McFly is to be called a chicken. That's right. Which seemed to be entirely manufactured in part two. I don't remember that ever being an issue in Back to the Future <laughs> right. Part One. But hey, all good science fiction has to have a little bit of retcon in it. Sure. Especially when you're in a time warp series. Yeah, perfect opportunity. Yeah, exactly. I had a, a really fun moment, and this was just kind of like a personal experience thing as I was reading, but I got to a point in the story where Cordelia was just like really tearing into to Susan, and I kind of just stopped reading at the end of that paragraph and started kind of cursing under my breath at the book and at the character. Like, I am so sick and tired of Cordelia and her a horrible treatment of her niece and this is ridiculous like every single word susan says no matter how gentle or polite the response is as though she had been you know she'd been spit upon and then so then i started reading and then two paragraphs later that's when susan finally stands up to her aunt and he and slaps her and says i will not hear this from you anymore and i'm like yes so it's like within the same moment that i reached my limit Apparently, so did Susan. So it was a 
Very well timed on uh, Stephen King's part, I guess. <laughs> he got you exactly where he wants you. That's right. Uh, so I was excited because we get a special guest appearance in this section of our good friend, the man in black. Yes. Walter comes back and I could sense that this is where, where we're leading when there's a strange character that Jonas has to meet and the Pape has already met him, but can't quite describe him, just that he's odd and makes him feel uncomfortable. And Jonas is like, what What do you mean? What do you mean? Yeah, I thought it was just fantastic construction that King used here to basically give De Pape the poetry to express his experience with the man in black, but still not have the ability to explain his experience. So he could say things like, he laughs like a dead man, but not be able to even explain his own statement. Like, what does that even mean? To laughs like a dead man. <laughs> yeah. Like that, that doesn't that that belies explanation. But yet, this very unsophisticated, rough around the edges, the Pape is saying these things that are so eloquent that they give us the reader the image that we need to understand what he experienced or to experience it through him, but still not understand it. We don't know what it means to laugh like the dead. And then later when Jonas meets up with him and he hears the laughter, he's he's like, now I know what he meant, but I still don't know what he meant. <laughs> but I'm like, I I think he's talking about the man in black. And then, you know, Jonas gets called into, into this room and he hears a voice and he looks in the mirror and he doesn't see anything. And he looks around, he doesn't see anything. And there, poof, he's there. Can't mm -hmm. be seen in the mirror. It's just great. And then we get this nice piece. Um, you know, there, there's all sorts of characters here. So we know that, that the big coffin hunters work with Farson, but they're not really close to him. Like Jonas has seen him across the distance at one time and he's been pointed out to him, but there's this sort of layer in between. So there, the Pape keeps going off to see if he can find one of Farson's lieutenants who's going to give them special right. orders to move on. And then Walter, the man in black, seems to fit in here somewhere. So there's all these layers. It's, it seems like a very middle management heavy organization that John Farson's running here. I can only imagine what this org chart looks like. But the big coffin hunters get to get to see him and they need to prove who they are. You know, it's much like when we're at work and we have to show our badges before we can get into any place. Instead of having him on a key fob though, he's got the good man's sigil and it's this open staring eye, much like the eye of Mordor or something that, that yeah. Jonas gets this feeling. If I touch it, it's going to turn and look straight at me and I, I can't bear that. So I'm just going to just sort of leave it there. Yeah. It actually made me think uh, of Beastmaster, not, hey. not, not Game of Thrones. I mean, sorry, not Game <laughs> not, of Thrones. I mean, uh, Lord, not of, the Lord of the Rings. More 80s movie references. Yeah. I mean, that creepy <laughs> ring that the, the guy yeah. was wearing and like it would open up and it was actually a human eye and it looked all around. <laughs> yeah. That always freaked me out every time I watched that. So I'll be interested to see knowing that, hey, Man in Black's in town. Is he going to have a run in with Roland and Roland's not going to know it yet? Um you know, before he yeah. continues to chase him on. I, I don't know where that's going to lead or, but I, lo I love that he's brought in. Unfortunately, and I, 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 I'm hearing his voice and Matthew McConaughey's voice the entire time. Oh, even, it's ruined it for you. It, it, it's ruined it, especially when he makes a reference. And I don't know if he does this in the movie or not. It seemed very familiar to me, but he makes a reference to, uh, hey, Jonas, what do you like better? Frank Sinatra or, or Der Bingle? And of course, Jonas has no idea what he's talking about. I'm pretty sure he meant Bing Crosby, right? Of course, yeah, yeah. So, good, good stuff from the Man in Black. Yeah, he's he's always good for a laugh. 
the laugh of a dead man. <laughs> <laughs> so that's going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover book four of the Dark Tower, Wizard and Glass. Come read chapters five through eight. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening.